This is The Science of Sex, a podcast about the ins and outs of the latest research about everyone's favorite topic. Hosted by Dr. Jana, a sex researcher and professor of human sexuality at NYU, and Joe Partavilla, the guy who's a fan of sex. Here's Dr. Jana and Joe. All right, here we go again. Episode three of The Science of Sex. Dr. Jana, what are we going deep on today? We're going deep on a study that found the brains of highly promiscuous men process romantic information differently. Their brains light up to different things than the brains of monogamous people. So you're saying promiscuous men and monogamous men are different? Yeah, go figure. (laughs) The Science of Sex. Foreplay. Well, you can't do a podcast about sex without talking about the biggest sex story on the planet right now. Harvey Weinstein, the movie mogul, fired after 30 years of groping, harassing, and allegedly raping women in the movie business. And this is a story that shook Hollywood and kind of resonated across the globe, Dr. Jana. But how does something like this happen where a guy this powerful is able to get away with this for so long? Well, I mean, I don't think we should be too surprised that this happens. In fact, stories like this have been coming up. In fact, our current president has a number of similar stories behind him. And and all of the conditions are kind of the same. All the circumstances that have allowed this to happen are kind of the same. You have a man in power with access to a lot of, you know, very beautiful women whose careers in one way, shape or form depend or could be affected by what this man does or doesn't do. And they have access to them, you know, coming in coming in close contact and personal one on one contact with them. So that's not surprising. Probably the culture was different, right? Those kinds of things were considered a lot more acceptable to some extent, especially if you don't think it goes all the way to rape, but maybe, you know, a little little groping here and there, a little harassment kind of uh, here and there that just was not on the radar for a lot of people as something horrific as it is nowadays. So even if people had noticed that they were willing to turn a blind eye so that probably plays a role to some extent and also you know people not not knowing you know Mm -hmm. some of these things are things that have happened in private and then the 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 women obviously have a lot of reasons not to come forward because they wanted their careers not ruined or not even started potentially you know if if they were early on in their careers it seems like 2017 sexual harassment has had a major breakthrough because obviously you mentioned trump Mm -hmm. we have the weinstein situation but let's not forget what's happening over fox news but how about Fox, Fox News with Roger yeah. Ailes mm-hmm. and Bill yeah. O'Reilly? It seems like finally people are getting more woke to it and being like, you know, listen, we can't let this happen anymore. Indeed. I think that is a welcome development. It means we are more willing to talk about it and come forward. So things are changing for the better. But we still have a really long way to go. One thing that caught my attention these couple of days on, on Twitter and on social media was how many people, as they were denouncing Harvey uh, and his, his behavior, for example, would use the argument especially men would use the argument well you know as a as a father of two daughters five daughters you know however many daughters i understand how you know important this issue is or how horrifying this kind of behavior is and i'm like uh why do you need to be a father to know that right yeah like yeah. didn't you have that understanding that this is a problematic behavior before you had daughters so <laughs> yeah it's funny how people use that that's when as soon as you said that it hit me right around the trump sex tape that came out the excess mm. hollywood tape mm. because remember all the congressmen who denounced him and said they couldn't support him because mm. they had daughters and right. it's like wait a minute like, so if you didn't have daughters you would be able to support that like yeah. you are not capable of making the connection right. that sexual abuse or harassment is bad 
for women unless you have a daughter. Right. If, you know, if I have a son, you know, that seems pretty legit what he's right. doing. But, you know, if I have a daughter, no, I can't and, a, and apparently that. all the other women in their lives don't matter. So your wife sure. or your female friends or, sure. you know, any other woman is like a vagina. Yes. <laughs> Simply that. <laughs> Not really a human being? No. And and it seems like we should be past it. Because I remember as a kid growing up, I'm a few years older than you, but I remember the Clarence Thomas hearings. And that oh, was like yeah. the first time you remember hearing sexual harassment. At, until that point, was like not even a thing people even knew what it meant. Because mm. it was just one of those things. You kind of, oh, okay, a guy's hitting on a woman at work. That seems perfectly legit. Nothing right. wrong with that. And then all of a sudden, Clarence Thomas blew that up. And then it seemed like people were more aware of it. But the fact that all these powerful men have so much control and everyone, like you said, is so afraid to affect their own career by stepping forward and saying something, it's a shame. And, you know, he's blaming sexual addiction on this. Harvey Weinstein <laughs> is going into a clinic that costs more than $37,000 a month, and it treats men 24 hours a day, and it's a gentle path sex treatment program. What the <laughs> hell does that mean? Uh, I'm not exactly sure what a gentle path sex treatment program is, but God, this is so American. Man, what are you talking so about? Funny. What is? This getting caught doing something sexual that people think you shouldn't be doing, mm-hmm. whether it's cheating on your wife or uh, you know having sex with lots of, say, sex workers or, uh, you know, in this case being a coercive and abusive and harassing kind mm. of predator and then just blaming it on this oh it's a sex addiction so i mean there's so many so many layers uh, to this you know yeah. there's a big debate to, to begin with there's a big debate about whether sex addiction is a real thing in 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 the way that many of these programs approach it and and in the way that many people kind of tend to think about this being the problem as opposed to the other camp saying you know there is such a thing as problematic sexual behavior but is that really the addiction or is that really the, the the problem itself? Or is this a manifestation of something else? Is this a symptom of something like low self-esteem issue or depression or anxiety or some sort of personality, you know, borderline personality disorder? Or in this case, or in many other cases, kind of not being a decent human Person. being yeah. Yeah. <laughs> and just kind of using this as an excuse. or yeah. yeah. Now, I know you're the PhD of the show. You like to mention that all the time. But I did do some research, and I did say that some in the scientific community don't buy sex addiction as an actual thing. Where do you mm-hmm. fall on that camp? I tend to fall more on that side yeah. of I don't really think of it as a real thing. I mean, obviously, and we, as we'll talk about in the show just a little bit after this segment, sex is rewarding to the brain. You know, our, our brains light up when we have sex or think about sex or seek sex out, uh, similar to you know, what drugs can do or food can do to our brains. But and, and that can sometimes turn dysfunctional mm-hmm. in some way. But very often the reason why it's dysfunctional is because people are lying to other people or cheating on people they shouldn't be cheating on or abusing and you know doing things in a way that's non-consensual. None of that is the, an addiction. Right. Like your brain you know, being addicted to, to sex. It's these other things that are the problem of how you're going about your sexual behavior. I mean, you see this in pop culture and even uh, you know if you read about it, but you do hear about like sex addicts anonymous and mm-hmm. such. Like, that, like AA, mm-hmm. is, are they? Is, is it all hooey there? Because they're not really sex addicts, and they're just kind of looking for the real reason 
for their problems or, well, or is, is that working? Many of these programs, I mean, there are a lot of different kinds of programs yeah. and many of them are kind of sex negative, pretty sex negative in general. So they have a very narrow understanding of what types of sex and under which conditions are acceptable. Very often it'll be, you know, uh, with a long-term partner and a long-term relationship, you know, nothing too kinky, nothing too crazy, you know, no anonymous sex of any kind, no sex with sex workers, no masturbation, you know, more than who knows, you know, once a month or something or once a week. Jeez I don't know. Uh, I, I'm, you know, these numbers are yeah, not yes. necessarily, but yeah. there are these very narrow boundaries within which they consider acceptable for sexual behavior and then everything that falls outside of those boundaries is, is is imbued with shame and guilt and has to be stopped and very often you know people in these rehab programs will be asked to stop masturbating or stop you know doing a lot of these things that are not in and of themselves problematic right. and so and very often they will not be addressing any of the other issues they're they're going to be addressing the, the the sexually dysfunctional behavior as the problem as opposed to a symptom of some other problem that is going on with these people. There are certainly therapists and programs who will see patients or, or clients with these sexually dysfunctional types of behaviors and then work on them to really get to the bottom of, okay, what is going on? Like, what is the problem that this behavior is trying to solve? Yeah, yeah so essentially the sex addiction is on the surface of something much deeper. So mm-hmm. you've got to go, you've got to go and get help and then go really dig deep into what is actually the cause for all that. Yeah, exactly. There are many different things that could be driving this behavior to begin with. It, it could be something like, you know, it's depression or, or dissatisfaction with your own life in, in some ways. And this is a coping mechanism because, you know, just like any other thing like food or, or drugs or too much exercise or, you know, gambling, you know, any mm. of these things can be a coping mechanism for some sort of dissatisfaction or depression or low self-esteem, that kind of stuff. So, on one hand, it could be that. On For some other people, it could be, as I said, part of something like borderline personality disorder or antisocial disorder. Right. Like in these cases, you know, when you have people abusing other people or harassing other people, then the, the problem is not that they want to have lots of sex with a lot of people. They can easily be going and having lots of sex with lots of people if they do it consensually. Right. right. It's the coercive element of Weinstein's behavior that is the problem. It's not the fact that he wanted to have sex with lots of beautiful women. And, and what bothers me very often about some of these addictions sex addiction approaches is that they moralize and they uh, stigmatize desire itself to want to have sex with lots of different people. And there is nothing wrong in that in and of itself. It's how you go about it. So in this case, you know, some sort of antisocial, coercive, manipulative, aggressive personality coupled with this high desire and high access to uh, lots of potential victims that is the problem. Then in some other cases still, so in one case you're talking about some sort of coping mechanism. Mm -hmm. In other cases uh, you're talking about some sort of coercive and anti-social personality stuff. And then in yet other sets of cases, what you have with these so-called sex addicts is shame and guilt around sexual activities that are not problematic in any way. And the problem being that they have created lives where that kind of behavior is not acceptable. So if you have somebody who is, say, watching porn, say, you know, several times a week and masturbating to porn several times a week, but that, say, guy is married to a woman who thinks porn is evil and, and immoral and 
she is very unhappy about his porn use, he might start thinking that, you know, he's a sex addict and that his behavior is inappropriate because his wife thinks it's inappropriate or because his religious group thinks it's inappropriate. In fact, if he only was married to somebody who didn't have a problem with pornography, who may even want to watch pornography with him and, you know, use that as a in, as a mood kind of enhancer and getting in, in, into the mood or something like that, then that exact same behavior say, watching porn three times a week would not at all be problematic. So very often, I think, when we live in a society that has all of these... Uh, hang-ups? Hang-ups, yeah. yeah, that's a pretty it's, good... Say it. Yeah, about sex, you're going to end up people thinking that something is problematic and seeing themselves as sex addicts when they're not. And there is research to support this. You know, Very often, people who perceive themselves as sex addicts, who will use that label for themselves, they don't actually have more sex or with more partners, or even masturbate more, or watch porn more than other people who just have really high sex drives but don't see themselves as as addicts. Like the amount of sex that they're having is going to be the same. It's just how they feel about it, whether they feel this distress and guilt and shame, whether their social relationships with their families and potentially professional relationships are being put at risk. But a lot of that could be of the what kinds of relationships you've built and you've put yourself in. So maybe if he goes on this gentle path, we can find a way to, you know, some sort of recovery. I still, I still don't oh, know no, what no. the hell in this, so, <laughs> Yeah, this was a very long kind of dis- discussion about sex addiction in general. Yeah. But in this particular case, the problem is not that he's a sex addict. The problem or that he wanted too much sex. Right. The problem is that he was getting all that sex in a coercive way and sex addiction treatment is not right. is not going to solve that he you know he's an asshole he, he needs he's a, an asshole <laughs> he needs asshole treatment which i don't yeah, believe exactly. there's a gentle path to fix that <laughs> now on a lighter note people like the idea of threesomes dr jana but apparently they're too lazy or scared to try one really a new survey out of the <laughs> university of new brunswick in canada asked 300 college kids that are Canadian about threesomes, and here's what they find. A lot of people like the idea of getting it on with two people once. In fact, the college kids were more open to it than people in any other generation, but they were too lazy to try one. Only 13% of the people polled of the 300 have been in a threesome. What's your takeaway from this gigantic poll of 300 people who, <laughs> who are too lazy for threesomes? Well, the the size of the sample is not that problematic okay. as the the fact that you know we just talked about a non-representative sample of college students at, from a single university. Uh, also, it's not exactly a new study. I think I wrote about this study about a year and a half oh, ago. Oh, geez. I apologize <laughs> for out. not being up on my studies here. <laughs> no, no, but this is something that just was it's published. Poppin', yeah, it's popping yeah, up it's in the Daily up. Mail. Um, I'm also surprised that they wrote about this particular study when now we have a much better study or a much better sample of people that we actually talked about on the first podcast episode, yeah. right? That nationally representative sample of adults in, in the U.S. from 18 to whatever age. Yeah. And we have data on threesomes. And I right. wrote about that in my Forbes column. For those of you who don't know, I do write wow. a weekly or more than weekly Forbes column on sexuality, Aren't science of sexuality fancy? and sexual health. Wow. So my first article actually was about threesomes and what we know from this new study about threesomes. And, and what we know is that about one in seven Americans has had a threesome, and one in five finds them appealing. So in this study, by the way, they say men really preferred the idea of having a threesome with two women or having one with a woman and another man. So men were really more into it 
than women. Did the national study also see that as well? Unfortunately, the national study did not ask about the type of threesome. Ah. So we don't have that. I would not be at all surprised that, uh, you know, <laughs> you most don't need to study for that. men would be more interested in the two women and themselves in the middle type. And uh, we don't have national data on that. That's one of my, my greatest pet peeves about that study, that they didn't ask about the type of threesomes. But I totally, I totally get it. The new study also asked about how appealing right, is having a threesome. Mm-hmm. So the vast majority of women and actually a majority of men, too, found threesomes not appealing. Not appealing. Again, I'm going to say that again. Well, yeah, there was a space there. <laughs> that was not, there was not a, t- a malfunction of any sort. There was, what, really? 65% of men found threesomes unappealing. Interesting. Either not appealing or not at all appealing. Could so it- only 35% of men in the U.S., mm-hmm. nationally, representative sample of men in the U.S., 18 and over, only 35% of them said that they found threesomes at least somewhat appealing. So do you think of the 65%, though, do you think the laziness factor has something to do that, too, that it really (laughs) requires a lot of work? Because not only do you have to get that the one person who would be interested in having sex with you, but you'd have to find another person. It certainly is more more work, yes, logistically and otherwise. And I think that probably plays a role in why more people find threesomes appealing than have had them. Right. However, I don't think that the laziness plays a role into the appealingness because appeal is just like, you know, you're thinking about it and yeah. like, is yeah. this something that's hot for you? Right. Yes or no? And that's one of the stereotypes that people have of men, like, oh, men would like a threesome. <laughs> well, uh, no, apparently not, at least not in America. Only 35% of men and about 10% of women would like a threesome. All right, speaking of threesomes, I'm here, you're here. It's time for our third person to join us on our show, right? <laughs> Let's do this. The science of sex goes deeper. A recent study out of University of Texas at Austin found that the brains of highly promiscuous men processed romantic information differently than the brains of highly monogamous men. This was not the case with sexual information, where both groups processed those images similarly. On the phone with us to discuss the study and its implications for non-monogamy and monogamy is lead researcher Lisa Dawn Hamilton. Lisa Dawn is an assistant professor at Mount Allison University in New Brunswick, Canada. And the study is actually from the time she was a PhD student in behavioral neuroscience at the University of Texas. Lisa Dawn, welcome to Science of Sex podcast. Thank you. How did this study even happen? I mean, time in an fMRI machine is really expensive from all I know, and I don't see any of the big research funding agencies, you know, funding this kind of research, especially not in the current political climate. But how did this happen? I agree that it's almost impossible, and it was really serendipitous. It just so happened at the time I was starting to get interested in research on monogamy and non-monogamy at the University of Texas at Austin. They just got their first MRI scanner, and because the MRI center was just getting up and running, they actually had a pretty major grant to offer MRI time to researchers. And so we just had to apply to this internal fund, and we were granted 20 hours in the scanner and to do this project. So I, I really don't think it would have been done through a major funding body. It just happened that the timing was right, and there was free scanner time available at the university. So if I take an MRI right now, you'd be able to give me the results and everything? Theoretically, yes. Oh, good. good to know. I'll keep you in the back of my mind, Mr. Don. All right. But, you know, we're talking about this technology. Most people don't really know much about brain imaging. So can you try to explain fMRI technology in a way that a high school student could understand? Sure. One of the things that I think is interesting about how the public in general perceives MRI is that, oh, if we have these spots on the brain, we must know what's going on in the brain or if we can make these pictures of the brain. But the technology itself is actually 
I would say sort of vague. It's, it's both amazing and vague. And so essentially how it works is when areas of your brain are active, when neurons are firing, there's a brief period where the blood becomes deoxygenated. And so and then there's a rush of new blood that goes to that area that reoxygenates it. And the difference between the oxygenated and not oxygenated blood that happens when there's activity in the brain is really what the scanner is measuring. So it's able to measure the difference in the magnetic properties of blood flow in the brain, specifically when we're talking about fMRI. So it's called a blood oxygen level dependent signal, and that's what I talk about in my paper. And another thing that I think is really important for people to understand about fMRI is that your brains are always doing things all over the place. So the brain is constantly firing, neurons are firing. Um, and so what is important for fMRI to figure out what's happening in response to a specific type of stimuli, you have to subtract it or compare it to something similar like close enough but different. So that's why in my study, you know, we compared sex Im images to neutral images or romantic images to neutral images because you have to compare it to something that's close-ish because um, otherwise if you just look at a picture of the brain, it, all sorts of things are going off and it's basically uninterpretable. Joe, as someone who doesn't know anything about MRI, does, that, does this answer... I mean, were you just speaking in English, or was that some sort of Chinese? <laughs> oh, God. I'm, I'm very confused right now. So basically, in layman's terms, you showed these pictures to these men involved in the study, and then you scanned their MRI? Or at, when, when did this all take place? So it's happening as they're looking at the pictures. Okay. Um, and so a full brain scan, I believe in this case, took two seconds. So every two seconds, essentially, they're taking a full picture of the brain, and then I average what the brain was doing while they were looking at sex pictures, and then I oh, okay. subtract what their brain was doing when they were just looking at pictures of people barbecuing or landscapes or something. Gotcha. All right. So you get these 10 monogamous men in this case, 10 non-monogamous men. You bring them in the lab, and you're like, okay, lay down an fMRI scanner, mm -hmm. and we're going to show you some photos. Take mm -hmm. pictures of your brain. Yeah. <laughs> and they, they just had to lie there and look at the pictures. Uh, they didn't have to do anything. You have to say, like, you know how when you go an eye test, better or worse? Yes. Better or worse? <laughs> right, None right. of that. <laughs> None of that. We didn't want to distract them at all from just focusing on the images. Interesting. Uh, so that's why we decided not just to get them to lie there and stare at them. <laughs> so uh, I heard Dr. John say there's 10 monogamous men and 10, I guess, non-monogamous men. How did you find these uh, 20 guys? It actually took quite a while to track down men who fit our criteria. Monogamous so I... men? No, I'm just kidding. Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that was a hard thing, finding people that I didn't know because <laughs> I didn't trust those people to tell the truth. Right. Um, but part of it is I went in based off this uh, model of these rodents that are highly monogamous and highly non-monogamous. And so I went into it thinking that... I was going to find groups of people that were just totally monogamous and groups of people that were quite non-monogamous. And we ended up interviewing about 75 people over the phone to try to get people who fit into our criteria of highly monogamous, highly non-monogamous. And what I found and what has directed my research since then is that a lot of people kind of fell somewhere in the middle. They weren't at these extremes. Um, but, yeah, so we had to interview quite a few people to find these men, and we put advertisements all over. This was, took place in Austin, Texas, and so we put advertisements in newspapers. You found monogamous men in Austin, Texas? How is that even possible? <laughs> I know, right? Now, you mentioned non-monogamous men. Was there, like, a magic number to make them non-monogamous? Yes. Yeah, so for the men to be 
considered monogamous. Uh, originally, we actually wanted people who had only ever been with one partner ever, but that was just too hard to find. So we, <laughs> we set a cutoff of five people maximum, okay. um, and but they had to have never dated, even casually, more than one person at one time. They had to report desiring monogamy. So we asked them, you know, in an ideal world, if you could do anything you wanted, would you want to be with multiple people and so they had to say no to questions like that and, and they, they exist also- joe i'm seeing i'm looking <laughs> your face and you're like no they exist all right okay good to know <laughs> That's actually an interesting point is that one of the things we had was people, I had people yell at me when I told them they didn't qualify for the study. And they, they were often men who were fairly monogamous, but not, they didn't meet our strict criteria. And they would say things like, you're never going to find anyone that meets your criteria. Uh, wow. <laughs> I'm so, as good as it gets, as close yeah. as it gets to monogamy. So you were breaking up with these men, essentially. <laughs> Basically. And you know, the, it's funny, though, the, the desire thing is important, too, because mm-hmm. I think a lot of people sometimes would love to be promiscuous, but right. they can't or don't right. have the ability to or have trouble meeting women. Mm-hmm. So that's a really gray area there. How did, yeah. you, how did you dig through that? Uh, well, we just had a series of different questions about hypothetical situations. Mm-hmm. And essentially, they had to say that, no, they really were dedicated to being monogamous and, and just had no interest in being non-monogamous or having multiple partners or having any partner other than their current partner. In addition to that, another tricky one was we asked them how often they fantasized about other women, Mm. and it had to be relatively infrequently. I think it was Um, something like once a month or less than once a month. Yes, yeah. Like that. this was an occasional thing. They would sometimes fantasize about other women, but for the most part, they just fantasized about their partner. Uh, and, and you found people like this? We did, yeah. <laughs> so, uh, no, but it's funny. I mean, Joe's reactions are what so many people have as a stereotype, yeah. right? Mm-hmm. That all men fantasize about having sex with, you know, hundreds and thousands of w- women all the damn time, right? Mm-hmm. That everybody, given the chance, would be chasing thousands of partners all the time, right? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The reality is that's not. really not like okay. that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, exactly. There's a lot of variability in, in what people like. You know, regardless of their gender. Okay, so we got the monogamous people, fewer than five partners ever, never dated more than one person at a time, never cheated on a partner, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. And were really committed to monogamy. They did not want non-monogamy. What were the criteria for non- highly non-monogamous men? For the highly non-monogamous men, we were looking for people who had either cheated on partners in the past or had multiple times throughout their lives been involved with multiple people. And they had to have had more than 10 partners in their lifetime, but most of them had much more than that. And they also had to just report things that would go along with non-monogamy, so desiring lots of sexual partners, preferring a style of relationship that involved them being involved with multiple partners. Whether or not their partners were allowed to do that was another story. Um, But just in general, people who who were sort of, we called them uh, committed to not being committed. (laughs) Now, how do you separate yourself from a, because you're a PhD and a doctor, how do you separate like your human side and your PhD side? Like when someone came up to you and said, yeah, I've I've had sex with a hundred people. Like, are you able to be like, huh? Like, were you able to just be more scientific about it or do like deep down like, boy, what's up with this person? Why? Do you think there's something wrong with someone who's not at all, Dr. Jana? I'm not asking (laughs) you. I'm asking asking Lisa Dawn here. Uh, Well, I think part of it, I was, I've been a sex educator since I was 22 years old. And one of the, part of the training that we went through for that is just being exposed to all different sorts of people, all different sorts of scenarios. And I used to work on this phone line based out of Vancouver called the Facts of Lifeline. And so I've heard kind of 
anything you could hear. Oh, so you're quality. immune to all this, right, at this point in your life? Yeah, I okay. very much have a non-judgmental approach both in real life and in science life. So, and that also, I think, drove my interest in non-monogamy because so many people are focused on infidelity and there seems to be a lot of judgment attached to it. Mm -hmm. And so I kind of went into this wanting to do a non-judgmental approach. Now, with, were some of these highly non-monogamous people in poly relationships, were they, right, because you can have the consensual non-monogamy and the non-consensual non-monogamy version of non-monogamy, mm -hmm. right? Cheating versus poly or swinger or something like that. None of them identified as being polyamorous per se. Um, so some identified as someone who, who cheated on partners, but uh, others just either mostly casually dated people or um, didn't make official commitments, but there was no sort of formal polyamorous arrangements, but there was some consensual non-monogamy. Okay, so what was the procedure? What kind of images did people see? So they would come into the lab, uh, well, to the MRI area, and we would first make sure they had no metal in their bodies. That was a main criteria. Uh, and one of our participants actually had a lot of piercings, and he had to take all of them out before oh, wow. he went into the scanner. Um, but they would come in, and they would lay down in the scanner, and essentially they would lay back, and the images are projected on a screen that's reflected directly above them. So they just kind of stare straight ahead, and they see the images. And the images were shown in blocks of images. So there would be a series of sexual images, a series of romantic images, and then a series of neutral images, um, four or five at a time. Can you and define sexual, romantic, yes. and neutral? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, so the sexual images were sort of basic vanilla sex scenes with two people engaging in some sort of penetrative intercourse. And in some cases, you could see the penetration, and in some cases, you couldn't, but it was always strongly implied. Men, um, women? Yes. So they were all partners of males and females, because all of our men were heterosexual. Okay. Um, so we showed them men and women together. So all of the sexual images were, were men and women together engaging in penetrative sexual intercourse. All of the romantic pictures were, again, male and female couple doing things associated with romance. So some of them were walking hand in hand in a meadow. Some were sort of snuggling, like, but fully clothed, looking into each other's eyes. A scene from The Notebook, I hope, was involved in this. If not, this is a failure, this entire study. <laughs> Basically, yes. You okay. can think of it in that realm. Okay, yes. good. <laughs> and then for the neutral pictures, we had people doing things like barbecuing or working at an office. And then we also had a set of landscapes where it was just mm -hmm. mountains and streams and things like that. And then the results showed that there was no difference in brain activation between the monogamous and the non-monogamous men while they were watching the sexual images, right? Both groups seemed mm -hmm. to have found these images equally arousing to the brain. Mm -hmm. That's, on one hand, unsurprising and good kind of thing, right? Yeah, so we would, uh, sexual imagery is a pretty strong stimuli that most people are kind of wired to respond to. Uh, so yes, with, between these groups of men, we didn't see any difference in their response to sexual stimuli. They had both groups, their brains lit up quite a lot. Uh, in response to the sexual stimuli. I mean, that makes sense. So basically a guy who's a man whore or a guy who's just, a, you know, a monogamous, they will react the same to pornography, essentially, yes, right? Yes, essentially, okay. yeah. Yeah, I mean, sex is important for, for both of those yeah. sets of sets of mm -hmm. men. Mm -hmm. So, mm -hmm. But the key finding, though, was that the brains of the two groups differed when it came to romantic stimuli with the brains of monogamous men having increased activation when looking at these romantic pictures than non-monogamous men. So can you tell us which areas of the brain these were and what they do? Because for most people, myself included, neuroscience, like brain areas is 
<laughs> makes me feel very dumb. <laughs> yeah, can you translate all that for us? No problem. So the actual areas that we saw a difference in that were uh, more active in the monogamous men when they were looking at these romantic pictures were uh, on the right side of the brain, and the areas were the thalamus, the nucleus accumbens, the caudate, pallidum, putamen, the insula, and uh, parts of the prefrontal cortex. And Joe, so, you got this, right? Yes. Uh, <laughs> prefrontal cortex. That's from Back to the Future, right? Oh, no, no. That's flux capacitor. Continue. Yeah. I'm sorry. What was it on? So those areas, um, many of them are part of what's often called the dopamine reward system. Oh. And this is something that gets talked about a lot when we talk about people doing drugs or it, it's really an area of the brain or a, a system of the brain that responds when people are doing things they find rewarding or when they're seeking out things they find rewarding. It reinforces the behavior when that part of the brain is active. It's saying, you know, this is a good thing. I want to do more of this. Ice cream? <laughs> yes. Ice cream would absolutely <laughs> activate this reward circuit, for me at least. That's funny. You know, the, the, the second you said that, Lisa Dawn, it immediately dawned on me. Monogamous men were more focused on the love aspect of a relationship and that's what fired off that right side of the brain, whereas the promiscuous men, the love is not so important, so you didn't see as much of that firing off on the right, correct? Potentially, yes. It's hard to say exactly yeah. what they were thinking or saying or what they value, but yeah, that the it seems as though the monogamous men saw this romance stuff as more rewarding, potentially. So no one Dr. Jana would ever date is pretty much what you're saying. That's not <laughs> true. A little bit of romance I can take. All right. You know? <laughs> I will also add that parts of the brain, like the insula, also involved in almost all emotional things. And so um, the insula tends to get active in any MRI study you read or fMRI study. The insula seems to be active in relation to emo anything with emotion attached to it. Uh, and so that was something else that was active here. So it's rewarding and it's triggering an, uh, sort of the limbic system, emotional center of the brain as well. There were some also some interesting uh, within each group of men finding. So among the monogamous men, the Areas that were active when viewing romantic pictures were still active when they were viewing the sexual images. But the promiscuous guy's brain showed additional activity during romantic stimuli in several regions of the cortex that were not active during the sexual photos. When we're looking at MRI or fMRI responses, we're always comparing two things. And one of the things we found was that when we directly compared romance with sex for the monogamous men, that there was basically no difference. So the areas that were active in response to the sexual stimuli stayed active in response to the romantic stimuli. And that's largely because both of those were pretty rewarding to those men. For the non-monogamous men, when we directly compared romance to sex, what we found was when the non-monogamous men we're looking at the romance pictures. When you compare that to the sex pictures, you see all of this cortical activation. So when the cortex is active, that's our higher level thinking centers. So the reward pathway and things like that are what are considered lower level or they're things we, that are more in tune with our reflexes and our instincts and are more rewarding, whereas things in the cortex are things we're thinking about, essentially. It's sort of a higher level processing. And I like to think about it as though they were looking at these pictures going like, huh, what is that? <laughs> As opposed to just looking at them and enjoying them. Right. So they were on one hand less rewarding, which mm -hmm. we established, but then there was also this additional cortex level, higher level processing of information like 
studying these images mm-hmm. or, or mm-hmm. like it's almost like they them. discovered fire like it's like <laughs> yeah. wait a minute all right sex i get that and then, wait what's this love thing oh that looks cool i don't know if i would do that but that looks interesting essentially that's it right potentially yes i think that's a uh, great yeah explanation great of what like was that? going on yeah yeah all right good yeah no yeah. It's, it, it is funny though because it, it, it kind of does prove that these promiscuous men or non-monogamous men it's not like they're afraid of love they're like oh that's kind of cool I don't know if I would do it, but it's still kind of cool. Well, I do think we have to add the caveat that, you know, there's lots of non-monogamous men who are also totally capable of love and romance. Of course. Yeah. But also you don't exactly know what exactly they were thinking. You know, they may have been looking at that and thinking, oh, that's cool. Or, yeah, I don't know about that. Mm -hmm. Or, you know, so they could have been processing those images in many different ways. And, sure. and the well, you MRI have your story, is not going to catch mine, that. Right, Dr. Jana? Uh, okay, you have your <laughs> version of the story. Okay. <laughs> okay, so, so how do you explain these findings more broadly? So th- does this mean that non-monogamous men have some sort of a biological predisposition toward non-monogamy in, that is reflected in the brain? Or is it the other way around? Maybe have, have these uh, men's brains been shaped by different kinds of experiences throughout their lives, and that's why they're responding differently? So my background is as a social neuroscientist. And in social neuroscience, I think one of the things we often understand and talk about is that there, it's a constant back and forth between your biology and the experiences you have in your life. So everything you do changes your biology, and then your biology can affect what you do. And it's sort of a constant cycle, and it's really hard to tease those things apart. While I think there's some evidence that biology is involved uh, in how we go about our lives and what we find rewarding, um, there's also tons of evidence that what we experience in our life can also shape what we find rewarding. So for example, you can think of different cultures and food, for example. So some cultures find a certain food to be amazing and delicious, and someone from outside that culture might come along and eat the same food and think it's disgusting. So for the first culture, it's very rewarding, it's delicious, they would have all that reward activation, so they've learned over time that this is a good thing, and it changes their biology to react that way, Uh, whereas someone who's never had that food and thinks it's disgusting (laughs) is going to not have that same reaction. So it's really hard to tease apart whether we have a predisposition for this or if it, our behavior and our experiences in life shape it. It probably goes both ways. Right. And, and just by scanning the, the brains of adults, you can really tease that apart. Could you yes. do that if you were scanning the brains of children and then follow them around and see later on how monogamous or non-monogamous they ended up being? I think it would be tricky because you would also have to control all of their experiences, too. So if you could lock someone in a box, and could, <laughs> like a rat, like how they can do yeah. with the animals and control every aspect of their life, then then you could potentially do that. But yes, doing studies over the long term and following someone from childhood through life would be a better way of trying to get at the direction of it, but we still wouldn't know exactly what their life experiences were. Right. Now, you mentioned, you know, biology, and, and we know biology playing a role to some extent, because, you know, we live in a society, at least in our Western world, where traditionally it's operated on the assumption that monogamy is natural, monogamy is healthy, and non-monogamy is not just morally wrong and unacceptable, but also unhealthy, like something has have to gun wrong in your development in order to want it or seek it out. On the other hand, these days we hear more and more from 
activists and kind of uh, people advocating for consensual non-monogamy in particular, that monogamy might be the one that's not natural and that all humans are in fact non-monogamous by nature and that our societies are trying to box us into these unnatural boxes of monogamy. So what do we know more broadly about what causes monogamy or non-monogamy in desires and behaviors? How much of of biology plays a role from research, animal research, human research? So in animals, in the voles that I mentioned before, which are small rodents, there's been actually quite a lot of research done very specifically on the biology. And the studies I talked about in my paper were some of the earlier and more basic studies because with the humans, I was just looking at brain areas. But the research now, they can ident- they know exactly the receptors and the genes that can turn on and off monogamous behavior in these rodents. And those, it's, it's related to the hormones oxytocin and vasopressin, as well as a neurotransmitter called dopamine, which people might be familiar with through things like rewarding behaviors, like eating ice cream. Mm-hmm. So all of these hormones and neurotransmitters and their receptors in specific brain areas do seem to be linked to monogamous or non-monogamous behavior in voles. And the systems seem to be similar-ish in humans, but I think it's so hard to translate from a a rodent that mainly just has that rodent brain and humans have these giant brains with cortexes that can, you know, take in all sorts of information and process all sorts of information and spit it out in different ways, that it's hard to know the degree to which biology contributes to human preferences for monogamy and non-monogamy. One of the things that I think is particularly important to talk about is I think a lot of research and, and people who are challenging this idea that monogamy is the the one true way or whatever, <laughs> um, I think that humans aren't just one way or another. I think that there's variability, like almost everything that humans do or almost everything that occurs in nature, there's variability to it. Um, and so I think some people are monogamous and some people aren't, and most of us fall somewhere in the middle. So Lisa Dawn, you know how sometimes you hear a guy say, I'm not wired to be monogamous, or I'm not mm-hmm. wired for the other. I mean, is that possibly true? I mean, I know you're saying not all, but do you, say, mm-hmm. do you think certain people are more like, I don't know whether it's genetically or, or something in their, in their brains that just doesn't allow them to be monogamous? It's really hard to speculate on that because, you know, they're, them coming to that point where they're like, I'm just not wired to be monogamous, yeah. is it because they've had horrible experiences with monogamy? Is it mm-hmm. because... You know, their group of friends is really into having sex with lots of people, or is it because they have a biological predisposition? I think it's so hard to tell just from any person off the street. You're saying it's some sort of a continuum, right? Mm -hmm. Trying to say all humans are monogamous or all humans are non-monogamous would be like trying to say all humans are extroverted Mm -hmm. or all humans are introverted. Yes, exactly. Whereas, in fact, it's more of a spectrum with some people on the extremes of that spectrum and and a lot of people somewhere in between. Mm -hmm. And probably both biological factors contributing to some extent, at least with some people, and then other experience that you mentioned contributing to a different extent. Yeah, I think it is definitely a mixture. And one of the other studies that I did years ago when I was an undergraduate with um, Sari Van Anders, we did a study on testosterone levels in people who identified as polyamorous or, and regardless of whether or not they were in a, a relationship with multiple people at the time, they still had higher levels of testosterone. And so just wanting to be in a polyamorous relationship or living a poly lifestyle was related to being having higher testosterone. In but both men the, and women? Yes. Mm-hmm. Well, you need to to keep up, right? I mean, you know, 
You need all the help you can get, right? <laughs> yeah. Or that higher testosterone may have been the reason why you wanted it in the first place. So it uh, could be either one of those. Okay. Or it could be, yeah, if you're seeking sex more often, your testosterone is going to be higher. Or if you're having more sex, your testosterone is going to be higher. Or is it your testosterone's higher and so you're having more sex? It's right. so hard to tease these things apart. Right. You know, I have a question about the study. When you decided to do it with the MRI scans and everything, what was your goal? Because that always fascinates me about people with, with studies because it's really honed in on what you're looking for. What hit you there? You're like, this would be a great idea for a study. I guess at the time, um, I had recently read The Ethical Slut, which is a book mm. that talks about polyamory um, and how to engage in having multiple partners in a healthy and ethical way. Mm-hmm. Then I also, around that same time, this was both when I was in my undergraduate, uh, um, I had started learning about these voles. And so it just sort of happened at the same time. I was learning about non-monogamy in humans, and then I learned about these voles that were monogamous or non-monogamous, and I was like, huh, I wonder if humans are like voles. That, and that's really basically how it started for me. Wow. <laughs> that's awesome. So you only studied men, 10 monogamous, 10 non-monogamous men. What about women? And can we expect a similar study in the future looking at women? I would absolutely love to study women. And if there are funding agencies listening to this or anyone who wants to sponsor this research, uh, I would be happy to do so. But as we talked about at the very beginning, I think it's really difficult to fund this type of research through major funding bodies. And I don't know if I will ever get the money to do this on women without free scanner time. Mm, well, if there are any polyamory swinger organizations wanting to n- invest some money in research, Lisa Don Hamilton is your is your woman. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Would you expect to find something similar in women? I go back and forth about this. On one hand, I think that it it is likely that it would be similar, that if we found highly monogamous women and highly non-monogamous women, that we'd probably see similar differences. But then on the other hand, a lot of research in humans around sexuality shows that men tend to be more rigid in their sexuality while women are more fluid. And so I I wonder if we would see such stark differences Mm. in women because potentially they would shift more over time than men would. Oh, I would love to peek into women's <laughs> brains. <laughs> yeah. I'm, what are your thoughts on that, Dr. Jean? I hear your, your dilemma. I still think that you would probably find, you know, romantic stimuli somewhat less rewarding mm-hmm. among the highly non-monogamous women, although maybe the difference won't, won't be as stark as, as the one in men. Mm-hmm. you got to get Dr. Jean to write you a check there, Lisa Dawn. Maybe she'll <laughs> yeah. uh, fund, you the ne- fund the next study for you. Lisa Dawn Hamilton, thanks for joining us on the Science of Sex podcast. Thank you so much for inviting me. This was awesome. And speaking of non-monogamy, you've got a little project called Monogamish you've been working on? (laughs) Well, it's not exactly my project, but I am going to be involved in some way. So Monogamish is this new documentary that is exploring these new relationship lifestyles, right? Like not complete monogamy. And Monogamish is a term that Dan Savage popularized and then allowed the filmmakers to use it. So Tao Ruspoli is this uh, filmmaker who discovered kind of later in life non-monogamy and uh, has been on a quest to understand it more. So there are interviews with Dan Savage, with Esther Perel, who wrote Mating in Captivity, Chris Ryan, who wrote Sex at Dawn. And it's really an exploration and trying to understand what non-monogamy is and how it functions. And Friday the 13th, (laughs) 
perfect, it's yeah. Friday the 13th uh, of October, is going to be the opening night for Monogamish, screening here in New York City at the Roxy Cinema in Tribeca. And it's going to screen every day for a week. And after each screening, there's going to be a panel of people, Taurus Poli, the uh, filmmaker, and then me on some of the panels. And then other people are going to also discuss some of these issues and answer audiences' questions about monogamy, non-monogamy. So I think it would be really interesting to, to watch the movie and then hear uh, some of the some of the speakers, myself included, some of the panelists talk about some of these things. That's a really fancy panel you're on there too. How'd, how'd you get in on that? <laughs> you must be something big in this whole uh, sex science community, huh? If I were, I'd be in the movie. Oh, right. that, that, the movie. that's true. <laughs> well, are you going to be too big that you're not going to be able to do this next week? Or are you are you you're still? Gonna... I, th- I, I think I can handle. Yeah, all of it. Oh, yeah. All of this. Yeah, all right. Yeah. Okay. I mean, you're doing movie screenings. <laughs> you're like writing for Forbes magazine. You're name dropping all these fancy studies. But you will be back next week. We'll be back next week, I promise. All right, see you next week. The Science of Sex is produced in New York City. To connect with Dr. Jana and Joe, follow them on Science of Sex Podcast or on Twitter at Science of Sex Pod. Subscribe now to listen to the weekly podcast. This has been The Science of Sex. 